Hi, this is Dr. Kimberly Leonard, and you're listening to Incredible Life Creator Podcast. My guest today is Susan Lynn Crawford. Susan Lynn Crawford is an alcoholic. She is also a writer, speaker, podcaster, and recovery advocate. Susan has spent the last five years joyfully sober, sharing what she has learned with other addicts and those who love them. Her greatest joy is working with others new to the recovery journey, journey, taking her message to groups and individuals ready to truly start living. Welcome to the podcast, Susan. Thank you so much, Dr. Kimberly. I am so happy to be here. Yes, and I'm so happy to have you. And I see behind you, you have some of your art and your book is back there. I do. I've got my own little shop right here. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So I'd love to, you know, have you tell people about you and so they can get to know you and kind of know your journey. Perfect. Well, my journey started off like so many other people's. I went to college. Um, I actually have a degree in graphic design with a minor in illustration you know, graduated, moved to this to a big city and uh, started doing graphic design. Um, long story short, my company was bought out. So at the same time I had been designing, I had started to do talent work, which, you know, audio books, radio commercials, television commercials, things like that. So I kind of had a plan. I was going to do graphic design full-time freelancing and the talent work part-time and it flipped on its head as life will often do. Um, So I spent a number of years just living, basically living kind of a dream. It was, it was just acting and being a spokesperson and speaking, you know, kind of being the face and the voice of companies. Um, During that time, I got married and my husband and I both enjoyed going out, you know, enjoyed having some drinks. Um, Long story short, throughout the marriage, that increased more and more. And it was not a healthy relationship. And I didn't really know. I mean, I'd I'd grown up as a people pleaser, you know, as someone who just, oh yes, Susan, she's, she's that gal, you know, always with a smile, always with a good attitude. And I really thought that's who I was. I didn't realize, excuse me, I, I had a lot of things that I hadn't addressed. Um, my mother died when I was young and I had kind of compartmentalized that and pushed it away. Because I thought, oh, you know, it's like all the feedback I got was, no, you're supposed to be happy. You're supposed to just kind of get on with things. So, Mm -hmm. oh, okay. So I'm going to get on with life. So past unaddressed trauma combined with a very unhealthy relationship and a love of cocktails literally turned into a perfect storm. Um, I found myself drinking more and more in the relationship, eventually, you know, drinking in secret. It, It really it took a relationship that wasn't good to begin with and took it to a really bad place. Um, In 2014, I was divorced. And after that, you know, the, the aftermath of the marriage and the things that happened, I won't go into the sordid details, but it was not pretty. I was overwhelmed. I mean, so completely overwhelmed. I didn't have the tools to deal with things. I didn't have the tools to properly process what I was going through and handle it. So I took an absolute nosedive. I mean, I, I started drinking 24 seven, anything to just escape. Um, I ended up in two detoxes because of my drinking, because it was so heavy. My family was worried. My sister in particular was very concerned. She's halfway across the country. So she, I mean, she was talking to people 
where I live, you know, just what can we do? What can we do? Um, and she finally let my dad know, you know, this is really serious. We need to get her help. She would not let up, which is such a blessing. And I love her all the more for it. But I literally, they, they said, she, she told me, you know, if you go to treatment, our folks will pay for it. And that's my dad and my stepmom. And I said, yes, just to shut her up <laughs> because I was like, she's not going to stop. Mm-hmm. And thank God she didn't stop. Um, that was the turning point for me for a whole new life. I've, I've learned throughout the past, it's now six years. When I wrote the book, it was five. Um, but I have learned about myself. I've learned who I am. I have dealt with things that I had never dealt with before, profound loss. Um, I've, you know, I understand now how impactful the things that happened when I was young and in my young adulthood are. And I've learned how to properly acknowledge them and work through them and heal from them. And I, it was funny because during my recovery, you know, I was attending AA meetings. I was going and speaking to people, um, just very active in it. And I noticed I was jotting down these notes that I'd started when I was in treatment. And I, I realized I kept telling people you know, they'd ask questions and I, oh, well, yeah, I'm just kind of, jo- you know, I've got this journal and I wrote down, here's how you might be able to deal with that. And all of a sudden, I mean, I'm a writer. I, I jokingly say, I, I love my three A's. I, I'm an author, I'm an artist, and I'm an actor. And um, I've written since I was young. And I've always had an idea of writing a book. I just didn't know exactly when. Um, I've written a lot of children's books and I've illustrated those. That's kind of a whole different thing. But I found myself with like this good chunk of book and I found the reactions I was getting from people when I spoke to them about their journey of recovery and my journey, it was, it was helping them and it was helping me. So I just kind of put my nose to the grindstone and created the optimistic drunks recovery guide. That was something, the whole journey for me has been an eye-opening experience and it's changed my entire perspective on living. I always thought, you know, oh yeah, I'm a happy, happy. I never realized it wasn't authentic. I, I was happy, but I was hiding so much pain and that's where the drinking came in. Mm -hmm. Now having learned how to work through those and how to deal with difficulties, you know, recovery's tough. And that's something I want to let people know. Yeah, it's tough, but man, it is so worth it. I, one of the biggest blessings of my life, as crazy as it sounds, is my alcoholism. Because without it, I would not be me. I wouldn't know who I am. And I wouldn't be able to go speak to people and help addicts and help families and encourage people. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, my story, um, I did in my recovery, I was doing retail management. I had moved into that and decided I had had a job that was a temporary assignment and it had ended. And the, the optimistic drunks recovery guide was kind of taken off a little bit. And I was speaking and doing all these things. And I started to think, you know what? I just, I just need to go for it. I mean, one thing I've learned is I've been given a second chance and I mean that literally it's, I'm, it's a miracle. I'm still here. 
And so I've got, I've got lots of people to help. So that's, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing right now. Everyone I speak to when they find out about my book, every single person says, oh, I know somebody who would benefit from that. Mm-hmm. Every person. So I just want people to see the joy in recovery and to know the hard work is so worth it. So. All right. Well, thank you. And thanks for writing the book and, yeah. you know, coming out of it very positive. You know, yeah. I see you happy. I see you bubbly and, and, and very positive and even turning something that, you know, sounds terrible into something that's good. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, Dr. Kimberly, it is, it's, I've always been an optimist. I mean, I, even, even when I hadn't really dealt with all the things that I needed to deal with, I was still an optimist. I still woke up in the morning happy. You know, I still like to spread sunshine. So for me, the combination of my optimism and the realistic attitude I have toward addiction, toward my alcoholism in particular, that's where the drunk in my optimistic drunk comes in. A dear friend of mine who's, who's kind of like a surrogate dad, um, he's been sober for, I think, 44 years now, and he's been a huge part of my recovery journey. And early on, he said something, I, maybe my dad told me, you know, hey, Bruce refers to himself as a drunk. And I was like, what? He said, yeah, he calls himself a drunk. And Bruce and I had a long conversation about that. And he told me calling himself a drunk keeps him grounded. It, it makes it so real. It makes it ugly. And, you know, I mean, if you, if you hear people talking, oh, she's a drunk, he's a drunk. That's not a nice thing. They're not saying, oh, that person's got it together. So for me to keep that prominent is so very important because yes, today I'm sober and I'm helping other people get sober and stay sober. But if I don't do the work I have to do every single day, if I'm not diligent, it can, it can slip away like that because I will always be an alcoholic and recovery is something you are always in there. There are different beliefs in that. My personal belief is you don't become recovered because it's a disease. If you treat it daily, if you make good choices and do the things you need to do, you can live a life so rich and so beautiful and I want to spread that message too, um, to let people know it's, it's not a, a death knoll, you know, getting sober is giving yourself a chance to really learn who you are and to really learn what life is and just to grab it with both hands and just run. So, yeah. Right. Beautiful. So I wanted to go back a little bit to the beginning of your story. So, um, before you actually got married, was there any signs of anything that you could have seen? Or was it that narcissistic where they just put you on a pedestal and you just feel like a princess and then all of a sudden things fall down? Um, with, with the relationship? Yeah. 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 It was, I, I was a people pleaser and I was literally, I've learned a lot about narcissism and in particular, malignant narcissism, I was the prime target because my, my self-esteem was nothing. I faked it really well. You know, I, people who, who didn't really know me, like who didn't really know me. Oh yeah. Susan, man, she, oh yeah. She's so confident. She's no, 
I would walk around with a big smile and hi, and I, you know, I laugh a lot and I talk. And so people automatically thought, oh, she's really confident. She's really self-assured. I was not at all. Um, and I, at the time, I mean, I loved going out, you know, with friends and I would drink more than other people would, but I could kind of get away with it then, you know, and I think in the back of my head, I knew there was something it's like, this is not normal. Other people at the end of the night, they want to go home and go to sleep. I want to keep on partying. Um, my ex-husband was the same. He, he loved going out for drinks and he did. He literally swept me off my feet. I mean, it was, it was the two of us against the world. It was, you know, oh my gosh. I remember, I remember him saying at one point, and at the time I thought it was so romantic and so beautiful. He was talking about my best friend and he looked at me and he said, before long, I'll know you better than she does. I look at that now and it's like, oh, that's creepy. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a perfect sign of a narcissist. Mm -hmm. At the time I was, oh, he loves me so much. He wants to know me. And, you know, so it's, it's interesting um, with narcissists, the way they will sweep you up. It's called a honeymoon phase, mm -hmm. um, literally romance you. Everything is perfect. And, you know, slowly kind of shutting people out and, just demeaning you, um, chopping you down, you know, kicking you down. And that, that played into it as well. Um, as the marriage went on, I didn't know at the time how gaslit I was. I mean, I literally, it's, I knew when I got really sick, I knew I was sick. I didn't know that was the right word for it. I knew something was terribly, terribly wrong, but he had, gotten me to a place in my head. I didn't believe, I didn't want to bother anybody with it. And that is, again, I say the perfect storm. It's, you know, somebody who already is predisposed to alcoholism, which I learned talking with my dad. It's like, we, we have all sorts of alcoholics in our family tree. So I was already genetically predisposed to it. Um, I had past trauma that I hadn't addressed and I had super low self-esteem and was a people pleaser. I literally, it's just like, hi, hello, narcissists. My name's Susan, you know, I'm here. So yeah, it was, it was a perfect storm. And I do, I remember thinking, um, I actually think I wrote about it in the book. One night I was, I was just so drunk. And I remember sitting on the stoop of my house, literally thinking, how can I end it? Because I reaching out, was not an option in my mind because mm -hmm. my self-worth was so shot. And that's a horrible thing to say. I, the, it, it's no disrespect to my family and friends. I have the most amazing family and friends in the world. Um, they love me to the ends of the earth and they were all fighting for me. My inner voice, my self-talk at that time, along with my disease, were just saying, you're not worth it. You're not worth it. So that's part of the reason, you know, Addiction has such a stigma around it. And so many people think it's, it's the dirty guy in the alley with the paper bag. I look like Miss Middle-Aged Midwestern. I mean, I look like people you see going to the store every day. Mm -hmm. I laugh a lot. I smile a lot. I am not what people think of when they think alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And I want to use that 
to, you know, to the benefit of everybody who's suffering in silence and who, you know, people don't look at them and go, oh, I think there's something wrong with them. So many people are just literally living with their disease in silence because they don't look like somebody who would be an alcoholic or an addict. So breaking that stigma is also something very dear to my heart. So, yeah. So if someone's in that situation um, where they're in a relationship that's going wrong and, you know, maybe they're, they're feeling, like you said, not even good enough to reach out, what would you suggest to them if they were to reach out, who would they reach out to or how do they start? It's, there are a lot of places they can reach out to. Um, the National Suicide Hotline is one. Um, if, if it's involving, you know, substance abuse, AANA, um, there are just, there are lots of different, you know, locally, like in different cities and different areas, there mm -hmm. are shelters, there are groups who will take primarily women, um, but it happens to men too, but there are groups who will take these people in. Mm -hmm. If they're of, if they're sound enough of mind, then, you know, it's, it's easy. If there's internet access, if you have a smartphone, you can look these things up. Um, suicide prevention hotline that those people do amazing work, amazing work. And it can just be somebody who just feels hopeless and doesn't know where to go. You can call and there will be somebody on the end of the, the other line to talk to you. And these people get it. These people get it. Um, AA and NA as well. AA is, you know, more for people whose substance of choice is alcohol. NA is drugs. A lot of times in this day and age, it's pills. Um, and they, you can go to a meeting and these people just will embrace you. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can have done or can be doing. Somebody in one of those rooms will not be able to, to relate to. And I mean that sincerely. It's, and you don't get judged. You don't get judged. So that's always another really good place to check. Um, if you, if, if there's anybody who feels like they're drinking or, you know, maybe they've got some pain pills and they realize they're taking them when they're not in pain, get help, reach out immediately because it will not get better on its own. It's a progressive disease. Addiction is a progressive disease and it's not going to just go away and you can't do it on your own. I, I can't tell you how many days my, my rock bottom was relatively short. I mean, it lasted about six months all told. And that's when I was really, really bad. Um, I can't tell you how many times it was just, Oh, tomorrow I'm not going to drink tomorrow. I'm not going to drink. But at the time I was drinking so much, I would go into withdrawal in about eight to 10 hours and I'd start to shake and I'd start to sweat. And it's like, okay, I've just got to have a little bit, you know, just, just to keep that at bay. And I was off to the races because I'm an alcoholic. There's no such thing as a little bit. There's no such thing as one drink. You know, I think those, I think those people are aliens. It's like, really, you can go out and have a glass of wine. Really? So, but yeah, definitely, um, talk to friends, talk to family, um, people, when, when you are in a relationship and especially when it's compounded with an addiction, you, you truly don't feel there's anyone. It's not so much that there's no one who cares about you. It's that you're not worth helping. It's that self-esteem is so shot and you don't want to infringe on someone, you know, and it, I mean that seriously. It's, 
you know, when I was sitting there considering how to take my life, I wasn't thinking, oh gosh, I should call this person. It was just like, I just don't want anybody to have to deal with this, including myself. So that's the biggest thing. You know, it's having the, the people in that situation realize they're worth saving, realize they're worth helping. And there is someone out there who loves them and cares and would be devastated if something happened to them. Exactly. And I would see in that also some embarrassment because, you know, especially like you were going to work, you look good, you're smiling. Other people don't know that when you go home, you're drinking throughout the evening. Yeah. And so there's something about even the embarrassment of sharing something like that. Shame is such a profound emotion it's kind of a double-edged sword. Shame can accelerate addiction. And once it becomes really bad, shame can keep you silent. So it's, it's feeling, you know, I'm not, I'm not worthy of this, of that, you know, just, I don't want to bother anybody. I'll just go home and I'll, I'll just have a couple drinks, just, you know, take the edge off. And then that turns into, well, I have this stuff, but I, I can't deal with it today. I'm going to have a couple drinks just, you know, and it just, yeah, it, it is very shameful. Um, it's, you can become paranoid because you know what you're doing, you know? And I was, I was a very high functioning alcoholic for quite some time. I, I would go home and drink so much, but I didn't miss work. You know, I didn't miss jobs. I, I was where I was supposed to be when I was supposed to be there. But in my head, I kind of felt like a fraud because I knew what I was doing mm -hmm. and I knew it wasn't just the normal going home and having a glass of wine to relax. I knew there was something that was, that was not right with what was happening, but that brings you along with the shame, another huge component of addiction and of abuse, um, like with abusive relationships is denial. Mm -hmm. You know, it's... I, I literally, the first time the words came out of my mouth at a meeting, when I said, my name is Susan and I'm an alcoholic, I thought I was going to fall over. I mean, to say those words with intent and knowing that's, that, that's me. Oh, it took a long time to get there. Now I'm very comfortable with it. It's, you know, I don't wear it. Um, I don't go around and use it as an excuse. I use it as an opportunity. It's, it has taught me so much about myself. It has given me an authentic love of life because I know how easily everything around, I could not be here to enjoy it. And I mean, I, I know some people are probably like, oh, she's kind of, I mean, I'm serious about that. It's, it's a miracle I'm here. And it is because of the love of some amazing people in my life and the three brain cells I still had that were rubbing together once I got into my recovery program that went, you know what, this is, this is real and this is hard, but this is something I have to do because I owe it to these people and I owe it to myself. So it's just so many different components, but when you hone it down, there are specific ones, the denial, the shame, the embarrassment, you know, the, it, that's always a factor. That's always a factor. Yeah. 
So I had a friend that was an alcoholic and he would religiously go to the AA meetings. And I mean, he didn't miss it. He made sure he went and a comment he made to me made me feel so sad. He said, you know, when you're an alcoholic, when you're, when you're drinking, it's terrible because bad things are happening or you're getting an accident or your, your, you know, your relationships are messed up. And he said, but when you're not drinking, you just want to drink so bad all the time that life is just kind of torturous, no matter what you're doing. And, and I, that made me feel really, I, I like, couldn't imagine that. That is so spot on for how a person, a person in active addiction, how life is. It, it's so spot on mm-hmm. you, for example, and I, I say, I use the phrase addict. Um, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I have friends who are addicted to pills and, you know, different things, but we're all facing the same disease of addiction. So I, I just kind of use that not as a catch-all, but mm-hmm. I don't discount anyone, you know, in their, in their journey, whether it's booze or pills. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there with my drinking, there would be about, I would say an hour to a 90 minute window where things would be good. You know, I'd get that little buzzy feeling. And this was before I, I really went rock bottom. Um, but I get that little buzzy feeling and it's like, oh, th- this is what I wanted. This is what I wanted. But the problem is I can't stop once I get what I want. You know, the normal people who aren't a- addicted um, can have a glass of wine or can have, you know, two glasses of wine and they get that happy, floaty, buzzy feeling. And it's like, oh, I would just keep drinking and keep drinking. And then, yeah, it's, as I said, you know, when I was working um, again, toward the end before I was doing the 24 seven drinking, but when I was well on my way there, I would be thinking it's, Oh gosh, I can't wait to go home. And in my head, have a glass of wine. I knew I was going to have like a bottle or two bottles of wine, not a glass, but I was still in my head, that denial you know, I'm going to go home and have a glass of wine. And yeah, then when you sober up the next day, I mean, you feel horrible, you know, there's nothing, nothing like a hangover or withdrawal, especially while you're at work, while you've got to be on point and thinking and, you know, but it's, it's just, it is miserable. It's a miserable way to live. And unfortunately, so many people stay in it, um, not just because of the physical addiction, withdrawal is an ugly beast. I mean, withdrawal is no fun. And a lot of people will stay in addiction simply to avoid withdrawal. A lot of people stay in addiction because we don't know how to stop. That was my problem. You know, I, I'm very, very stubborn and I hold myself to a pretty high standard. And I, I was like, I can, I can do this. I have the willpower. I can make myself not drink. And the hundredth time I said that, I still ended up drinking the next day. It's, it is just, it's like a carousel and you're just spinning and spinning and it's going faster and faster and you want to get off, but you know, if you jump off, bad things are going to happen. And you know, if you stay on, bad things are going to happen. It's, it's such a desperate, hopeless place to be in, in your head 
in your life. Um, and that, again, I keep coming back to this. I know so many people are just scared. I'll, okay, I'll use my creativity. You know, the, the three A's again, I'm an author, I'm an artist, I'm an actor. One of my biggest things was, oh my gosh, when I get sober, I'm not going to be able to create. I, all of my ideas are going to just fly away. And I was convinced of that. And I think in hindsight, I think part of that was me trying to talk myself out of getting sober. But it's so funny. I I've, I've know of a lot of, you know, very well-known artists and actors and authors who have had their own struggles with alcoholism or drug addiction. Same thing. They're all just like, oh yeah, it's like, it's like our, our drug of choice is the creative juice. And to a point, you know, you have a couple drinks and yeah, your mind frees up and you, you are a little less, you know, self, um, you, you let your filter down. So mm-hmm. sometimes you can come up with more creative things, but it has nothing to do with it. I'm, I'm a, a better writer. I'm a better artist. I'm a better actor. I'm better at everything now because I do it with intent and because I'm a creative person. So getting past that, you know, those fears, um, I won't be able to be around people because I'm, I'm horrible with people. I have to have a drink to take the edge off. I won't be able to be with my family because, you know, maybe there have been some issues in the past and there are tough family dynamics, which is so common. You know, I have to have a drink so I can get the courage, that old liquid courage to go deal with my family. Recovery, a good program of recovery helps you learn how to do all that stuff. And so whatever you were good at before the addiction took over, you're going to be so much better at that. And you're going to find things you never even knew you were able to do once you get into recovery, because you're learning so much about yourself and you're, you're, if you're doing it right, if you've got good people around you and I little side note for anybody who is looking to get sober, who is looking to enter a program of recovery, if you go to you know, a 12 step meeting, if you have support, if you go to a rehab, if you're not feeling it, if that place is not like, gosh, this is not, I want to get sober, but I'm not feeling like these people are really hearing me. Keep looking. Different meetings have different dynamics. It's like families. Um, I've been at the same home group since I got sober and I love them to pieces because of COVID. I haven't been there in person, but love these people. I mean, they know me better than most people in the world, but you, you will find your tribe. You will find your, your home base. Just keep looking. Don't give up. Don't let that be an excuse to keep doing what you're doing. So, so it's very difficult for someone to just kind of pull out on their own. You you really need outside help. Yeah. If, if there is, if there is a full-fledged addiction in play, I will say it's not impossible because I don't think anything is impossible, but close to impossible for an addict to get sober without help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now that you're sober and you've written down your notes, which have become a book, <laughs> um, how do you live every day and actually authentically feel the joy where before you were kind of you didn't realize it, but you were just putting on the happy face and you kind of felt happy. Yeah. But now you know the difference between that and actually feeling that joy, that happiness deep inside and that contentment. So what things do you have in place so that you can keep feeling that way? 
There are a couple of things. Um, I start and finish every day with a prayer. So I'll, I'll step back momentarily. Um, one thing in many programs of addiction, um, in recovery programs, specifically AA, they ask you to find a higher power. And it's, it's not necessarily God. A person's higher power could be the universe. Their, their higher power could be a tree. It could be a special place they go just to find peace and solace. The only thing it cannot be is a specific individual because people can fail. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to say, you know, oh, Fred is my higher power. And then all of a sudden Fred lets you down and oh, I'm going to go drink because Fred let me down. So it can be whatever you want it to be. But I believe a higher power is or spirituality of some sort is imperative in a program of recovery. So my higher power happens to be God. Um, I've always, always had a good relationship with God. I mean, from the time I was little to now, now it's just the coolest relationship ever. Um, but I spend time twice a day in prayer. The first thing I do when I wake up is I, you know, thank God for the day. I thank God for all the blessings in my life, for my home, for my car, for my kitty cats, you know, for my family and my friends and my fella. Um, I thank God for my sobriety and I ask him to help me not drink that day. Then at the end of the day, I, if, I mean, it depends on how tired I am. I usually give thanks again for everything, but I always say, thank you for helping me not drink today. Um, that keeps me in the present and being present and living from a place of gratitude will open you up to really experiencing authenticity in yourself and authenticity with your life. Um, I, I have, as I continued, you know, to work on being grateful. And when I started my gratitude in, again, in my early recovery, I, oh man, I was, I was scraping for stuff. I was just like, okay, what am I? Cause I had financial problems. I got a DUI, which was part of my rock bottom. So I had legal issues. Um, I'd lost my job. I had the most amazing boss, but he, he knew he was just like, you know, Susan, we, no, this is not working. I literally, it's like all these things got pulled out from under me and I was just struggling day by day. So I would sit there and it's like, oh, okay, what do I have to be grateful for? Um, um, I have gas in my car. Okay. I, I'm okay. I'm grateful. Cause I have gas in my car. Okay, I'm grateful. Cause I have coffee. I had coffee this month and I mean, I literally, and I would kind of start laughing at myself because it's like, this is really pathetic. You know, there, you have more, okay. You have your health. This is a good thing. You know, that gets, that gets overused, but mm -hmm. I still had my health. I still had those three brain cells that as my brain was healing itself, you know, we're, we're slowly reproducing and getting my noggin back in shape. Um, but just kind of the fake it till you make it. That's what I did at the beginning. And I was, I was surrounded again with the most incredible family, the most incredible friends. I mean, I had such a blessing of my support system. I, I, if there was nothing else, it was just like, I'm grateful for my family and my friends. That was, a, that was a constant, mm -hmm. you know, as I would give thanks and give gratitude slowly, it's like, Hey, these good things started happening. It's like, 
That's really cool. Oh my gosh, this happened to, I'm so grateful for that. Thank you, God. This is so cool. Thank you. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, something, oh my gosh, I've been given gratitude, you know, for all these things. And this other thing happened. It literally, when you live from a place of gratitude, authentic gratitude, and that's why it has to be, it has to be things you see. I'm, I'm looking around me right now. It's like, I have electricity. Right now, there are so many people, you know, in our country who don't even have electricity. Um, I have warmth. I have a roof over my head. Gratitude, just focusing on things to be grateful for and literally sitting and looking around and just calling out the obvious. It's, I, I talk about in my book about a snowball rolling uphill, how it just gets bigger and bigger and you're going to a better and better place. Gratitude works that way because the more you just say, I'm grateful for this, I'm grateful for this. Eventually you're going to say, wait a second, there's something to this. Um, I'm also a big kind of a science geek and energy for me is a big thing. So, you know, energy cannot be created or destroyed. If you're putting out good energy, like attracts like that good energy is coming back for me. Again, my good energy is my higher power. That's, that's God for me. If I'm giving out love and, and thanks and gratitude, you know, he's going, Hey, this lady, you know, she, she's got it. She's got it going on. She sees what I'm doing for her here. I'll give her a, a little taste of that. That again, doesn't mean bad things won't happen. Um, I have experienced some of the most profound losses of my life in my recovery, but I still have been able to wake up even struggling through that and feeling all that pain, which was so hard. I still was able to wake up and do my morning prayers and my evening prayers and realize I've got so much to be grateful for and just really focus on that. And that, that helps with the authenticity that helps so much. So what happens if you get up in the morning, you say your prayer, you say, you know, God help me not to drink today. And then you go to work, something happens, you have a bad day, you go home and you decide just going to have one glass of wine. And then that night, you know, (laughs) you can't say thanks for, you know, helping me not drink. So how do you get through that and keep yourself from continuing so that the next day you can wake up and say the same thing? help me not to drink. And then you don't drink the next day. Okay. That's a fantastic question. First of all, um, relapse, that huge, scary word in recovery. A lot of people say relapse is a part of it. I don't like to think that way because I think sometimes people use it as an excuse. I relapsed. Um, it, oh, it's horrible. You, you don't know when it's going to happen. Um, that's part of the scary thing. That's why, you know, part of the diligence and part of the everyday saying, you know, thank you for helping me not drink today. Right now I'm solid today. I'm solid. Um, I, I know when we get off from this, I'm not going to go. Well, first of all, I don't have any alcohol in my house, so, (laughs) but I'm not going to go have a glass of wine because I play the tape through, which means, I don't think about how good that glass of wine would taste. I think about what would happen after I had that glass of wine when I wanted another glass of wine. And I would start that 
I mean, that beast would be awake like that. So if I were to do it, my hope would be I would as quickly as possible, you know, after I, I took a drink or 10 drinks or however many, my hope is I would get back on track. I would call people. I would be surrounded with people in recovery who could help me, you know, talk through it, work through it, figure out why I took the drink. That's the big question is figuring out what prompted you to relapse. Was it a specific trigger? Um, you know, a really stressful day at work. Was it a project coming up? Was it somebody you used to be involved with and they showed up on your Facebook feed? Was it, you know, did you watch a movie and there was something in that movie that made you, oh, so it's, it's all of that. I would continue to say my, my prayers of thanks, you know, thank you for helping me realize I can't do that anymore. Thank you for helping me not have X, Y, Z have happened because I made a really bad decision and took a drink. You have to get right back on the horse and you can't, your higher power, whatever it might be, you can't assign blame. I mean, it's, you know, we all have specific things we ask for and specific things we'd like help with. Um, I've received more help than I can even express from my higher power. But at the same time, you know, it's not like, oh yeah, he, you know, he's got me. I can go do this. But if I don't hold myself accountable, that's eh, okay. He's still got me. It's, I got to do my part. I've got to do the work, but it's not his fault. Um, you know, it's, he's, he's got me still here, still upright. And again, in that hypothetical situation, which I hope doesn't happen today, I'm confident it won't. I would just, you know, please help me do better tomorrow. Please help me make better choices. You can't, one of the biggest things is you can't sit there and beat yourself up. Um, when I relapsed, I still don't know exactly how it happened. I, I mean, I was doing well. I was, you were talking about your friend. I was going to meetings. I was so active. I was in an outpatient program. I mean, I was doing everything right. And literally like that ended up drunk. And it, once you do that, you're just, it's so easy to go, why bother? You know, throw your hands up. I've wasted all this hard work. Everybody's going to be so disappointed. There's where that shame comes back in, but you can't, you just got to, as soon as you can course correct, course correct. Um, I mentioned earlier, addiction is a progressive disease. Even when you're so like for me, I've been sober six years. If I were to take a drink tomorrow, literally within a matter of days, I would be as sick as I was six years ago at my worst because my body is still, I mean, it, it doesn't realize, you know, hey, she took that six, or I should say my, my disease doesn't realize she took that six-year hiatus. You know, we should give her a break. We should take some time to get back up to speed. No, it's the addiction just, it's always there. Mm -hmm. And that's why you have to be diligent and you have to be proactive. And if you stumble, you have to get back up as soon as you can and start making good choices, you know, whatever your means of support in your reco recovery program is, um, for my, you know, my specific, it's talk to people, go to meetings. Um, right now there are still meetings on zoom, 
you know, call somebody, um, talk, talk it out, figure out what happened and get back to making good choices and get back and to get back to living authentic, authentically. And yeah. Yeah. So let's say that we have someone in our family that's an alcoholic and they're going through recovery and they find themselves in that situation where they're, they want to drink or they're about to drink and they call and they reach out to one of us. What do we say to them? What are the things we shouldn't say that'll send them tumbling back down? What are the things we should say to help them? The, one of the first things I will say, please, please, please don't say, especially if it's somebody who is working on being sober, who is, who has got some sobriety under their belt. It's so devastating to family members and to loved ones when they think, oh my gosh, here we go again. Try to not do the, I knew you wouldn't do it. I knew you wouldn't be able to do it. I knew you wouldn't last. I knew this was too good to be true. I don't do that. Anything that's said or communicated that gives the addict an excuse, if they're vulnerable, if they're talking about relapsing, they're halfway there. So the best thing to do is to encourage, you know, if, if it's a person who is kind of familiar with recovery, if you feel comfortable being with that person and supporting them in that way, um, I would say, first of all, if it's someone who attends meetings, they need to get their butt to a meeting immediately. If they have a sponsor, they need to get their sponsor on the phone. Um, if it's, you know, if it's a situation where you can tell they've already started using then it's, it's like a five alarm fire. You need, you need to know who you can reach out to. It's a great idea to have some contact numbers for some of the folks in their recovery program, because we're like beasts. I mean, in recovery, it's, if we find out one of us has stumbled, I'm telling you what it's people will come out of the woodwork. So family members and loved ones, the best intentions in the world when there's a relapse that's imminent or already in progress, there's only so much you can do. So get them to a meeting, um, get them on the phone with a sponsor or somebody in their recovery program. If it's really bad, again, I say, you know, reach out to the national suicide hotline. They, those people, they're angels on earth. I'm telling you what, what the work they do is just phenomenal. Um, don't let them stay by themselves. And if you do have some phone numbers of people in their recovery program, reach out to them. I know when I, when I was really bad, I was actually, I'd been going to AA meetings and I'd been doing pretty well. I'd been kind of tempering my, my drinking. And then I just went and crashed rock bottom. And a very dear friend of mine reached out to my sponsor at the time and said, Hey, Susan's in a really bad place. You know, we need your help. And they, they literally created a little team. I mean, they took me, I stayed with one friend, took me to another friend's house. I stayed at, and they're there. My one friend is in recovery, but the friend who I stayed with is not, she's just a dear friend. The next morning she took me to another place where I stayed for two days. And then they took me to Valley Hope where I did my 28 day treatment program. So it was a group effort. Mm -hmm. And I was 
kind of an unwilling participant. (laughs) (laughs) So, and again, it's, that's something too. um, It's so hard to pick up that phone and to reach out. There's a saying again, in AA, you know, the 10,000 pound telephone, Mm -hmm. because that shame, that denial that Mm -hmm. I don't want to bother them. I don't want to take their time. I'm not worth it. I'm not, that all comes just, they're singing a chorus when things come up and reaching out for help is terrifying. Mm -hmm. And you're just, everything in your body and your mind is just screaming. No, no, you're infringing on their time. You're, they don't want to help you. They're busy. They've got families. They've got this and this and this. So yeah, if they're reaching out, whatever you can do. Um, but again, meeting support, you know, try to have some phone numbers of some people you can get a hold of and just say, Hey, we got, we got a code red. We got to, we got to get some, some intervention going on here mm-hmm. because the sooner you can get in there and talk people through it, or they could so often it in early recovery, the first several months of my recovery, literally there was not a moment of a day that went by where I didn't think about drinking. It was ever present. You mentioned your friend, you know, if I'm drunk, I feel horrible. If I'm not drunk, I'm thinking about it. That's, that's all, you know, it consumes you. Your addiction consumes you and everything in your life is planned and strategized and formulated around whatever your addiction is, you know, drinking or pills or, or gambling or, um, so it's, it's getting out of that, that mindset of just like in your head, when is this going to end? Um, with people in early recovery, that often is a big reason for relapse, even if there's not a trigger, because that, that addiction, it's like a voice in your head and it's just screaming, drink, drink, drink. And sometimes you do it simply because you can't handle that voice anymore. It's just too much. But I will also say um, there comes a point where if you're, if you're doing what you need to do in your recovery, there will come a day where you will get through part of that day and all of a sudden go, hey, I didn't think about drinking today. I, and I, I, I remember that day as Claire Isabel. So, yeah. Wow. So um, let's say that you are kind of wondering if a family member is an alcoholic or has an addiction, but you don't, you've never, you know, you don't really see them in the act of drinking all the time, but what behaviors or what things should we look out for if we're kind of curious about that. Something's just not right. Okay. That's a, you got so many good questions. I love this. Um, a couple of things that will be fairly apparent if the addiction is in full swing is they'll be isolating, you know, somebody who used to maybe engage in family activities or they'd go out with people and things like that all of a sudden is making excuses. They're not answering the phone. They're kind of withdrawn. Um, Physical things you might see is, well, you might notice an odor either of actual alcohol or kind of a sweet smell because alcohol turns into sugar when it's metabolized. So your breath can get really sweet. 
Um, but yeah, sweating, shaking, um, personality changes, if they seem really, really irritable, or if they just, if they seem just kind of out of it, or super flaky. Um, I've always been kind of, kind of a goofball, I guess I'll say. Um, and I just, you know, I, I like being loud and laughing and kind of, I call myself a dork. So I like being a dork and just kind of laughing at myself. And it's like, Hey, but if, if they are being just like really uncharacteristically strange or off, those are some things that can, that can pretty quickly go, something's not right here. But yeah, just paying attention to, you know, if you go out with them, I mean, don't, don't be an eagle eye, but just kind of keep an eye on, you know, if they do have a drink, are they nursing the drink or is it, is it going kind of quickly and that withdrawing and excuse making and, you know, you say you're going to get together for coffee and you're together for 10 minutes and they're like, I got to go. Or if they're being really dodgy about just sharing personal things. Um, definitely for me too. Um, I know I, I've always been a sensitive person. <laughs> I kind of, you know, like now it's like I cry frequently, but I have learned it's healthy. And I cry when I'm happy and when I'm sad, just if I'm really moved, I cry because it's good for me and I'm good at it. But <laughs> if you notice somebody, you know, who generally is pretty easygoing, if all of a sudden they're really irritable or just if they're acting sketchy, I, do you, does that word make sense? Yeah. If they're sketchy or off, just say, you know, hey, is, is something going on? You know, are you doing okay? And I guarantee initially most people are going to, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. But if you can try to open up that dialogue a little bit um, and just, you know, come from a place of love and, you know, maybe even especially with where we are now with having just gotten through 2020 mm -hmm. so many people are just they're in they're in really precarious places you know because of the pandemic and just job loss and family loss and friend loss i mean it's mm -hmm. it's been unlike anything we've ever experienced so especially now i think your question is so timely because there are people who normally would be able to handle things but we've been presented with such unmanageable changes and, and trauma that there are people who might not necessarily in a normal world be as susceptible to needing that escape or needing that relief. So it's, it's just, you know, just kind of check in and just, if something feels off, trust your gut, you, you know, this person, you know, and maybe they are just having a bad day. If they're having a bad day and you're like, Hey, you doing okay. They'll probably go, oh, man. Yeah. I just, you know, I tried to take the dog out and I slipped on the ice and I got to work and I had a project and, did, but if they're just, I'm fine. Then you might want to keep lovingly pressing a little bit. Again, I told you my sister, my, I said she was as tenacious as a little terrier. I mean, she mm -hmm. would not let up. I was so, so, so angry with her. I just wanted her to go away and stop asking me questions and just shut up. And she wouldn't. And it's the way she is. I mean, she, I adore my sister. She's my best friend. And I, now, I, I mean, we laugh about it. You know, it's just the, the fact she just, she knew something was wrong and she wasn't going to stop, you know, asking me 
until I either owned up or had, I had no other choice. Mm -hmm. So I hope, I hope for most people, it doesn't get to that point, but unfortunately in a lot of situations it does in mine, it did. Mm -hmm. And there comes a point where you just, you can't love them better, but man, you can refuse to take those, you know, lame wishy-washy excuses when you know Mm -hmm. something more is going on. Um, You might risk alienating them or in a case like mine, you might risk getting them to finally say, yeah, I'll go to treatment just to shut you up. <laughs> so <laughs> That's right. <laughs> squeaky hinge gets the grease, right? I'm telling you what, she was a squeaky, squeaky hinge. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love her. I love her. I'm so thankful for her. So I want to switch gears now and just talk about you. Okay. So first of all, why don't you talk about the art you have behind you and you as an artist and how that brings you joy and in your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah. One of the things um, during the pandemic, I was looking for healthy outlets that, that would be in line with my recovery and that would be just kind of cathartic and make me happy. And, you know, you've seen all these things about poor painting. I don't know if you've like on, on Etsy, you see poor paintings. There are tons of YouTube videos. Well, I've, I've been a painter for a long time. I mean, I painted in college and I've painted, I've done pet portraits um, for probably about 15 years, you know, for people who are big fans of their dogs and cats. Um, I've got just kind of a unique, a unique designerly style, but painting has always been something I really, really love. And I was feeling, I think it was August, September of last year. I was just feeling, you know, I just need to do something. I'm, yeah, I'm still writing and I'm speaking and I'm doing these things and are good outlets, but I'm needing something else. So I just decided I'm going to try this poor painting. It looks like fun. Oh my goodness. Dr. Kimberly, I'm telling you what, it literally, it's like, I tell people it is, it's like a therapy session mm-hmm. with paint and canvas. And because I am a painter, I am an artist. I'll go in, you know, once I have the main canvas and I'll tweak and I'll change things and I'll move stuff and I'll, you know, add, I I do mixed media. I do all sorts of crazy stuff, but it has become such a source of joy Um, with, with the method specifically of the pore painting, you can control to a point what the paint does, but after that, it just kind of will do what it, what it wants to. And I found, I was so delighted with that quality of the type of painting. Um, I was like a little kid, you know, it's just everyone. It was like, Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. And then getting back into it, you know, just exploring different styles and different things I could do to make it unique or to shift it or just to change it up a little bit. I've literally rediscovered my love affair with, with painting. And I, right now it's funny cause I'm looking around. Um, I opened up an Etsy store and the reason I opened the Etsy store was because I was running out of wall space. <laughs> in my home. I, I have done so many paintings. I haven't painted for a couple of weeks, but I have a probably pretty close to 60 paintings on my walls and up against things. And I'm reaching out um, to different you know, to different, like my church and different places that are somewhat open to see if I can display paint, you know, some of my paintings there. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it has become almost, like I said, almost like therapy, like a mixture of therapy and meditation. And now, of course, because I'm always thinking, you know, what, what could I do to help people, especially new to recovery? So now one of my things I'm looking to the future with is to do recovery workshops where we do pour painting and just play with the paint and get messy and talk and laugh at the beauty of it and, and giggle at the mistakes. And they're really, you can't make mistakes. I mean, again, because it's just the way that the way the medium works, you just can't make mistakes. You have lots of happy accidents, Mm -hmm. but it's been such a pure, simple source of joy. Um, Again, feeling like a childlike glee when I just create these beautiful things and I just sit back and look and go, that's really cool. And it's helped me so much. Again, not being able to get to meetings, not seeing people one-to-one, you know, not having that, that outlet or that contact. It's helped so much with the processing of emotions and just, you know, you can do things and you could kind of fling colors around and or you can just have a gentle, quiet, beautiful something. So yeah, I, I started the Joy Garage on mm-hmm. Etsy. And again, it was, I live in kind of an industrial commercial building and there is a garage caddy corner below me that's actually a photography studio. So that was kind of in my head. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite words is joy because it it's just, it's simple, it's concise. It sounds like what it is. And I think people are afraid almost to use it because they think it has to be really big. Oh, if something inspires joy, it's got to be huge. No, it doesn't. No, a baby giggling inspires joy in me. I mean, I love that sound. It's one of the most delightful sounds in the world. Getting my hands up to my elbows covered in paint. um, Just, it delights me. So the joy garage it is and um, looking at fingers crossed combining the joy garage with the optimistic drunk into recovery workshops to just help people experience simple joys and just these things that can lift your spirits and bring so much happiness that feeds into the gratitude that feeds into the living authentically. It's all, it all just kind of fits together. So. Yeah, it really does. And, (laughs) you know, I've heard of that where people actually use art as a therapy. Oh yeah. So, and um, I love to paint too. And the one thing I love about art is I don't think there's ever a mistake. No, I don't, you can make any mistakes in art. Every piece is a masterpiece and every piece is the way it was supposed to be. In fact, I had one art teacher that told me if you paint something and it looks too perfect, do something to mess it up. <gasps> Isn't that purpose. <laughs> Do something to mess it up because it's supposed to be unique and special. It's not supposed to be all straight. Yes. And she said, just make one side more crooked or something, anything to, to make it look authentic. You had a good art teacher. I love that. I love that. I actually had a ceramics teacher who asked us one day to pick our favorite piece of the semester. And we all thinking we were going to do some special showing. And he walked us outside and there was a brick wall and he said, okay, throw them. It's like, what? But he taught us a lesson again. When, when you said there are no mistakes, He said, you have to be willing to let go of what you thought was your best in order to see how good you really can be. Mm -hmm. So that has stuck with me for years, for for decades now. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I just love that. Yeah. There are no mistakes. There are, there are some times where it's like, oh, if I do something, I could goof it up and it's so pretty. It's like, but what if I don't do it? And it could be so much more interesting. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's just, I tell people it's like pouring emotions out Mm -hmm. on canvas. I highly encourage it for anybody who's thinking about dabbling in it. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. It's so much fun. So much fun. Yeah. You might discover an artist you didn't know. So if people wanted to connect with you, um, how do they find you? Do you have a website or you're on social media? Yes, I actually have a website. It is theoptimisticdrunk.com. Tried to keep it really simple. Um, I'm on Facebook at The Optimistic Drunk. It is actually Blessings of Addiction. But if you just search for The Optimistic Drunk, you can find me there. I am on Twitter at The Optimistic Drunk. Um, I'm currently working to start up a podcast that's still, you know, kind of in the beginning stages, but that's just keep an eye out. I will post updates on my webpage as soon as I get a little bit more, you know, more info on that. So the optimistic is always a good place to go for current events, for new programs I'm offering, you know, any speaking opportunities um, for online tips and tidbits I love to put out just really short little things on, you know, supporting people in recovery on things family members can do for addicts and for themselves because people who love addicts, they need to make sure they're taking care of themselves because it's, it's not an easy path. It's not an easy path, but yeah, the optimistic is a good place. It's your one-stop shop. And I also have the joy garage on there as well. So you can, you can go to my Etsy store too. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and for all your, you know, sharing and about what you've learned. And I I know it's going to help so many people. Oh, Dr. Kimberly, I thank you so much. You are doing so many amazing things, helping people share joy and sharing their journeys and discovering their life purpose and just realizing it's like, take a chance, you know? You never know if you don't try it and man, life is so beautiful. And if you're, if you're living your purpose, it's absolutely extraordinary. It so. really, really is. So I have one last question for you. Uh-huh. What's your best advice on living an incredible, extraordinary life? Be authentic, be true to yourself. Don't, don't make excuses If you want to go get a law degree at age 60 and you have the means to do it, do it. Stop judging who you are and what you're doing through the filter of other people. Do it simply because it feels right to you and you're not going to lose. You're not going to lose. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Kimberly. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay.